0: This is episode number 389, and our final episode of the year of the Founder Podcast.
1: What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty
0: human who is intent
1: on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help.
0: and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to our last episode of 2021. It's just been such a wild year looking back with some of like our biggest and best interviews ever. This episode, we're going to be taking a look back at some of our favorite moments from the founders of companies like Netflix, Airbnb, Jimmy Choo, and so many more. But before we get started, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's followed along with us this year and been part of this journey You're the reason why we do what we do and we can't wait to just bring you along for our biggest year ever in 2022. We live to serve you guys and we're here to help serve however we can. Thank you for supporting the brand and we're going to continue to create some of the most incredible content with some of the most next level founders that no one can ever reach so you can really learn what it takes to start and grow a successful business. So first up we have co-founder of Netflix, Mark Randolph, and he's gonna explain exactly how the streaming giant got started. Enjoy. A lot of people know the story and your story, but for those that don't, I'd love to get a bit of context around how this idea of, of, of Netflix came about. And then I'd I know you've recently working on launching a podcast. I'd love to talk about that and really the concept of ideas because there's a lot of people that have ideas for a business um, and there's a lot of people that just sit on those ideas. And I think you know, you're an incredible example of someone just showing people that it doesn't matter like how good the idea is or whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, you really have to see it through and you just never know, right? So I'd love to talk about that with you. So yeah, just before we jump in though, I'd love a bit of context, like how did Netflix start?
2: Well, you know, I, after uh, Borland, I ended up starting a small software company with two friends of mine. Uh, and we sold that not long afterwards to a much bigger software company called Pure Atria. And the reason that's significant in the Netflix story is that PureAtria had been started and was being run by a gentleman named Reed Hastings and we all went to work in this big new software company and the rest of my team ended up in the basement in a business unit, but Reed grabbed me to make me his head of corporate marketing at Puratria. So I went from this cerebral startup job to boom, all of a sudden I'm running marketing for this multinational huge software company. But the beauty was Reed and I lived in the same town and I was reporting to him and Reed and I began commuting to work together. And we became pretty good friends. And then about six months later, uh, Pure Atria was acquired. And this time, uh, I wasn't so lucky, at least in terms of the same way, but this time I was gonna lose my job because they already had a head of marketing. And Reed was gonna lose his job because they already had a CEO. So the two of us were going, okay, what's next? And for me, that was simple. I was going to start another company. Um, Of course, Reed wasn't so sure. He thought he wanted to go change the world of education. He was gonna become a philanthropist, but he wanted to get a degree, a higher degree in education, so he had some credibility. So he was gonna go back to school, but he wanted to keep a finger in this entrepreneurship game. So we came to an arrangement that he would be my angel, I would start and run the company, but we needed the idea. And that's what led us to both being in a car commuting back and forth from our homes in Santa Cruz, California, up and over the Santa Cruz mountains every day to our offices in Sunnyvale. And we would pitch ideas to each other, or more frequently, I would pitch ideas to read. And this was not like I was a video guy, you know, who I could tell you all the great French directors or anything like that. I was normal. I watched Lion King trying to get a cranky kid to fall asleep. That was my movie experience. But um, I was a direct marketing guy. I was someone who saw the promise in the internet. I was a believer in personalization. So I was pitching ideas around that. And as you, as you probably know from, you know, that will never work from the book, I pitched in the idea of personalized shampoo, where you cut off a lock of your hair, you mail it in, our team of ace hair scientists formulate the custom blend and you subscribe to it and reed he was the analytical one he would find the holes he'd challenge me he'd push me on the numbers and the ideas would get rejected then i'd come in the next day full of fire and i'd pitch him custom dog food you know for your breed for its climate activity level gender whatever and he'd shoot that down i pitched probably 100 ideas and one of the ideas i pitched him was video rental by mail. Uh, And at the time, this is in 1997, spring of 1997, back then when you watched a movie, as you probably remember, it came on a VHS cassette, those big, heavy, expensive. And so it didn't take a lot for me to realize not gonna work and that got rejected too. So the breakthrough, if there was one, uh, came a few months later when Reed got in the car and said he'd heard about this new technology called the DVD, you know, thin and light. And it wasn't like if we had read about DVD, we would have said, aha, video rental by mail. It was more like, you know, when you're cleaning up your house and you you find under the couch, a little piece from a jigsaw puzzle. And you go, oh, that's the missing piece from that puzzle I was trying to solve two months ago. And that's how it was for us. That DVD could be the missing piece to making that video rental by mail idea work. And then here's the this is what separates my opinion of an entrepreneur from anyone else is rather than saying, cool idea, let's think this through, or let's go and work on a business plan, or let's put our pitch deck together, or any other crap, we just I'm thinking, just turned the car around right in the middle of the commute, went back down to Santa Cruz to see if we could validate this idea. And we went to look for a DVD and it was in test market, So there weren't any. So we settled for buying a used music CD, um, went a few doors down and bought a little gift envelope. Like you put a, put a greeting card in, uh, addressed it to Reed's house in Santa Cruz, bought a stamp and popped it in the slot and then went to work. And then the very next morning, when Reed came to pick me up uh, to go to work, he just had a little envelope with an unbroken CD that had gotten to his house in less than 24 hours for the price of a stamp. Yeah. And if uh, if there's an, as they say in screenwriting, an inciting event,
0: um, that was probably it. Yeah, wow. So then what happened next? <laughs> So then
2: this, again, this is 1997. So uh we, after a little bit of, I did a little bit of research into this uh, and we got to the point that every entrepreneur gets to where you go, I, uh, I can't learn anymore. I mean, there's no DVD rental by companies I can look at. There's no data on this. And you've got to make that decision, you know, based on the incomplete and inconclusive or, you know, contradictory information and just decide you're gonna do it. And so Reed wrote a check for $1.9 million. Uh, We raised some money from a handful of other people, including my mother. And uh, I rented a small office in Scotts Valley, California. I hired about a dozen people. We spent six months building a primitive e-commerce website, which you could throw together now in a half an hour. Um, and on April 14th, 1998, so more than 20 years ago now, we launched the company now called Netflix.
0: Next, we have Tamara Mellon, who's the co-founder of shoewear brand Jimmy Choo. In this snippet, you're going to hear the truth around what it takes to build a global luxury label. When you hear those words, you think and feel something and I'm a male, I, I have no interest in female shoes, but like you, you just like, how does it come to that? Like that feeling, that sense of like Jimmy Choo, the class, the luxury, like the respect, like you would think that it's not going to be a cheap shoe. It's going to be an expensive, like how, how, what, what do you think it took? Like, what can you tell, talk us through
3: that? So, you know, um, people always ask me that question, like, well, Was it the clever marketing? Was it yes? We were ahead of our time with marketing. We were clever, but with a fashion brand or with a product that something that somebody wears, product's just got to be good. You know, the product has got to be desirable. Um, People have to dream about that product. Um, and then you can put clever marketing around it. So with Jimmy Choo, I was the first British brand to go to the Oscars. I was the first shoe brand to go to the Oscars. And I set up a suite and I gave shoes to the actresses who were going to the wards. And, and what I did was I didn't know what color their dress was going to be because everything was top secret. right? So I took everything in white satin and I hand dyed it in the bathtub in the hotel bathroom. So wow. they would pick their color and we were dyeing it in the bathtub. I mean, we've had like crazy stories like Julianne Moore literally walked out in a pair of wet dyed shoes. Um, <laughs> you know, and we were, there's, there's, you know, part of success is a bit of luck too, right? You know, we, we were on Sex in the City multiple times. Uh, Candice Bushnell, who, you know, invented the show, came into my first Jimmy Shoe store in Motcombe Street in London, which was so tiny you could fit only probably three people in it. But she fell in love with the shoes. So she wrote them into the script. You know, so so part of it was luck that she came in.
0: Yeah, but luck luck is made, you think, or that's
3: true. That's true. Luck luck can be made and you know, and sometimes yeah, the harder you work, the luckier you get.
0: Mm. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Because you have built an iconic household name brand, which I think is is no easy feat.
3: Uh, know your customer, right? And and relate to your customer. People, most people's purchases are emotional, right? And so you've got to have that emotional connection with your customer. That's what people base their decisions on. Majority of people base their decisions on their emotions. Um, And I think that's important to remember.
0: In one of the most incredible stories we've ever heard on this show, hear how Amaze founder Matt Paulson's near-death experience fueled his outlook on business. Something that we we were told about you, which is crazy, is around your near-death experience. And that really... Changed things for you, right? Yeah, I, I clinically died just over two years ago. Um, and what
4: happened was when I was born, my stomach was twisted in the knot. And the scar tissue from the surgery, I was supposed to die when I was born. And the scar tissue from the surgery broke off all these years later, created a bowel obstruction. Um, I didn't know that at the time. I just knew my stomach was hurting. So I called my buddy and said, hey, Throwing a dinner party tonight, and I uh, want to be able to, I want to be able to do that. But, uh, but I'm in pain. He said, "You should go to the hospital. Um, your appendix might be bursting." So, went to the hospital. They did all these tests. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Our COO at the time, Helen, came because we were supposed to be meeting. My parents came, and you know, after a whole day of experiments, they said, "Look, we can't figure out what this is." So we're going to send you guys home. We're going to keep Matt overnight. And if he's not doing better in the morning, then we'll do surgery then. So Helen drove home to her her house and it was probably 11 o'clock at this point. She pulls into her driveway and something is telling her not to get out of the car, not to go inside, to go back to the hospital. And Helen is, you know, Uh, COO she's very serious she's British she's not like a Venice Beach listen to the cosmos type person so it was very out of character for her but the voice was undeniable so she drove back and if she hadn't driven back I would have died 45 minutes later Um, because my blood pressure had plummeted and the machines had not alerted the nurse. And so Helen came in and she knew her way around. She'd been in the hospital with her grandmother. So she kind of knew what was what. And she went and got the doctor and said, this looks really bad is, you know, this can't be right. And the doctor came in and took one look and saw that I was no longer getting oxygen to my brain. And so she called in a crash team, rushed me down to surgery. I came out of surgery and they said to my mom, the good news is we figured out what it is. It's bowel obstruction. Bad news is he's in critical condition. His heart rate is continuing to plummet, and we don't know why. And so then a couple hours pass, my mom goes downstairs to get my dad and my brother, and she hears over the loudspeaker, code blue in room 437. And my mom works in a hospital, so she knows that means flatline, and she knows that's my room. So she rushes to the door, and the nurse says, I'm sorry, you can't come in. This is really serious. And she said, look, I was there when he came in this world. If he's leaving this world right now, I'm going to be in that room. And so she led her in the room and they were doing the flat. They were doing the, uh, I was flatlined. They were doing the compressions, the CPR, and also the electric shock paddles. My body was bouncing up and down, but I wasn't responding. I was out. I was flatlined. And <laughs> so my mom, you know, my mom started to crumble. It's It's one thing to lose a child. It's another thing to be there three feet away when it's happening. And at the same time, my dad was outside with my brother and this doctor came out and said to another doctor in front of my brother, not knowing it was my brother, hey, we lost this guy. He's gone. And so my brother pushes my dad in the room saying, you need to be there with mom. And my dad was crying so loudly when he came in that my mom kind of turned away from me to him to say like, Gary, you got to be quiet or they're going to kick us out of this room. And when she did that, she said, she saw something she'd never seen before in a hospital. She said every nurse and every staff member and every doctor in the ICU had just gravitated outside the window and there was 40 of them. And they looked like this silent church choir, just sending in this positive energy And she was so moved by these people that were sending in love to this person that they didn't even know. It was like this transformational experience for her It filled her up with strength. And she turned back and she started coaching me. She said, Matthew, David Polson, these people are fighting to save your life. They're fighting so hard, but you're not fighting hard enough. You need to fight harder. You need to show them you're a fighter. These people are fighting to save your life. And they said it was a really surreal experience because here's this 65-year-old mom in this room. Like, no one's ever supposed to be in these rooms outside of the doctors. And because, you know, and the, and the flatline went on for four and a half minutes, which is a really long time. They don't usually keep fighting. You lose oxygen to your brain after 20 seconds. Um, but because she kept fighting, they kept fighting. And, but at one point, you know, she explained like her, it started to, you know, go through her head. Like, I'm gonna, like, I can't believe I'm gonna lose him. Like, and if I lose him, I'm probably gonna lose my husband and how is this happening? You know, her mind went there. And then right as she was doing that, the the main doctor shook his head as if to say, "This this is done. And so he kind of pulled away and she said, no, please. Like, don't, don't call it. And right as she said that he turned back and he looked down and he said, wait a second. I think we have a pulse. And then kind of as he said that, the whole room kind of like went like silent and just kind of eyes open. And then all of a sudden, I just popped up and then looked up and I saw this whole room just staring at me and I didn't know where I was. And then I saw my mom and then I saw my dad and I was on my side and I just kind of slowly lifted my right arm
0: and gave a thumbs up. Wow. That has to be one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard told to me. Um, that's, that's amazing. So like, how has that impacted you as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, who's somebody that, you know, every day you're, you're obviously taking, you know, with much more thought than ever. Right? Because I, th- I think sometimes it's easy to forget this kind of stuff. People don't really talk about death much. People don't really talk about these kinds of things of what happens at the end.
4: Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I'm still figuring that out. Like they, people expect you have these moments and then you just have this epiphany and everything is clear. Um, what I will say, it's, there's a couple of things that's taught me. One is that nothing is as bad as the fear of it. Right, so we, sp- we spend so much time, you know, projecting out what could go wrong in our lives, right? We have these incredible imaginations that when we're kids, we use our imagination to think about what's possible. And when we're adults, we-, we tend to use our imaginations to think about what could go wrong. And so we create these like crazy narratives and we have all this fear of what it could be. And probably one of the biggest ones is dying. And so I had a fear of dying and then, then I died and it was amazing (laughs) it was wonderful it was like it changed my life and so I don't know you realize even something that's as extreme as that like you, you bring that down to the daily basis of you know things we worry about with our business or or you know we project out and it's not to say you shouldn't be concerned about the long term but I used to like always think oh wow if like this goes under then in our early years like if this goes under then all these people who work for us are going to lose their jobs and like they lose their jobs, it's going to hurt their family. And I'm, I'm going to be responsible for that. And I'm also like, my, I'm not gonna be able to help my family and like, what's going to happen to them. And I would just take out all these, like, you know, all these stories in my mind. And like, that wasn't really that helpful. That didn't, you know, that didn't do anything. So you realize like, nothing as bad as the fear of it. And so when you realize that, then you start to think, okay, well, well the opposite of fear or the opposite of love is not hate, the opposite of love is fear so if you get rid of that space for fear you can spend a more time a lot more time putting love out in the world right you can you can you can, so i just like i used to spend so much time like comparing myself to people or projecting what people other people thought or um worrying about things and i just don't do that you know i it's not totally gone but i just don't do that at the same level so you you know and you don't have to have a near-death experience to realize that oh, you like literally just breathing just deep breaths like into your belly can like totally help those things go away. Just like it's, you know, our body's designed to actually do that. Um, And then the last thing is like, you know, it just makes me what I believe is possible in the world is fundamentally changed. You know, I was never a person who believed in a higher consciousness or a higher power I didn't, I didn't, or past life, lot or any of this. I didn't believe in any of that stuff. I'd hear people tell near-death experiences like, well, that's something that went on in their brain or maybe they're making that up. And even when it happened to me, like for the first year I spent, I talked to all these journalists and neuroscientists and all these people kind of like, cause I had this clear like vision of coming back to the light and what that experience was like. And, and I almost tried to disprove that for myself, but the more I learned, the more I believe it. And so what that means is like we all have this kind of superpower that is available that we're not accessing, which is kind of a greater consciousness. You can tap into other pieces of information, other energy that once you do that, the scope of your problem seems so much smaller because you realize like there's a lot more going on than like what we've kind of created in our world. And there's there's now a lot more neuroscience and physics to back that up. So I know it was a really long answer, but I would say realizing that you can get to the other side of fear was number one. Two, replacing that fear with love. number two and three is realizing that there's so much more possible than we ever realized and we can tap into that
0: coming up next we have the co-founder of airbnb joe jebbia how did they build one of the biggest platforms in the world you're about to find out it is truly exceptional what you know you yourself the, the team at airbnb have been able to create um so if we wind, keep going back in time, you had the air mattress, you got your first first guest. What did that look like from a platform perspective? Like who coded up the site? What did that look like? How did you like how did you spread the word?
5: Yeah, wow. We made that first website in less than a week or two. I was doing the front end coding and Brian was doing a little bit of the illustration. And then I, I pulled it together and we published the design. It's a five-page website. We were so proud of it. Airbedandbreakfast.com, an 18-character URL. I do not recommend a URL that long. And we we got the site up, but then we had our next challenge, which is how on earth do people find out about this? This is there's nobody's coming to our new website. And so we had a, uh, an awareness challenge. It turns out the design conference endorsed our website and Emailed it out to a few thousand of the attendees. And we also reached out to all the local design firms in San Francisco IDEO and Frog and Smart Design, Fuse Project. And we asked their designers to list their places for the conference as well. And then we did something. The night, I will remember uh, one night before bed, we emailed a bunch of design blogs about airbatbreakfast.com. And, and we had never gotten any press before. We had no idea how you would get on a blog. The next morning, It felt like Christmas. We were covered on the top design blogs back in 2007. Swissmas, Core 77, uh, uh, JoshSpear.com, Cool Hunting. There we were in the headlines at the top of these blogs. (laughs) It It was unbelievable. And with that awareness, we had people from around the world start to email us and say, hey, I'm coming to the conference, but I have a place to stay. How do I get one of these three airbeds? at the air and breakfast. And lo and behold, people started sending us their resumes, design portfolios, their LinkedIn profiles, trying to convince us why they should be one of the first three guests on the air and breakfast.
0: So how much faith did you guys have in the eye? Or actually, I'd love to ask you, like not, like, how much faith did you have um, in the start of, of, of Airbnb, like with this, you know, air and breakfast idea? Like, did you, were you confident? that it was going to be the thing that you and Brian were going to do? Or?
5: We were confident enough. And when I think back to like through the early years and all the rejection and the hardships and the, all the reasons why this should not have worked, I mean, this is an idea that was, that was not supposed to work because if, if you put it on a spreadsheet and you calculated it up, uh, there were too many forces working against this. If anything, just the bias that we're all taught as kids, that strangers equal danger. Like we had that to go up against, which is like, how do you even overcome that? Uh, And so, you know, building an online marketplace is, is probably one of the hardest, I'd say, you know, verticals to do on the Internet. Um, there's a reason that there's only a couple marketplaces. They usually consolidate. There's usually one big winner at the end because um, <clears throat> they're really hard to get the flywheel going and to get the scale of supply and demand that you need for a marketplace to be, you know, to, to basically, the, the metaphor we use, so to walk into the store and have products on the shelf that people want to buy. You have to have scale for that if uh, have they have a lot of products. And so in the early days, it was incredibly um, difficult to convince people even try this (laughs) Um, but there was uh, something unexpected that was in our favor which is the timing because in 2008 2009 what was happening globally economically that impacted a lot of people and changed people's behaviors was the economic downturn the 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 great recession I think because of that looking back I could see how people's Behavior shifted where prior to that, they'd say, no, 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 I, I'm not interested in having a stranger at my home. I have an extra bedroom, but only for people I know. Now, suddenly, there's some economic hardship and people looked at it a little bit differently, uh, a little bit more open-minded. Well, you know, if that could help pay off the mortgage every month, I'll give it a shot. I saw good coverage in New York Times or maybe a piece of press that we got that year. And people started to open up and warm up to this idea and when they got to our, our service when they got to airbnb.com they saw that we built tools to make it safe to make it reliable uh to make it more trustworthy than uh than before and uh, what's remarkable is um i remember so many emails coming in from early hosts in 2009 telling us that our site saved them that they were going to foreclose in their home and they came across Airbnb, they started hosting people and they were able to keep their head above water economically and save their homes from foreclosure. We had dozens of those emails and um, so many that we, we actually printed them out and put them up on the wall in our living room, which was our office. It's where we started to see okay, there's something more to the site than just travel. Like this means this can mean more to people than just, than just a travel site. Because the hosts were also telling us, wow, I'm meeting some of the most interesting people. Our guests from Italy have invited us to go back to Rome next time we're in Europe. I feel like my world's expanding. The world's coming to my living room. So there was this, you know, the economics, but there's also this social component uh, that that hosts uh, in the early days uh, love. And it's still very true today.
0: Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a tonne. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like they're building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder. Ray Dalio is one of the wealthiest people in the world and is the founder of Bridgewater Associates. Listen to how punching his boss in the face led to the creation of the world's largest hedge fund. Can you tell us about like, uh, when you punched your boss in the face and which led you to start like Bridgewater? My first
6: job on Wall Street after that summer job was the next year, and I um, worked at Director of Commodities as an assistant to the Director of Commodities at Merrill Lynch. And then when I got out of business school, I was offered the job to be Director of Commodities at a brokerage house, and I ended up being at Shearson-Hayden Stone in charge of institutional commodities. I've been hedging by institutions. And, well, the upshot of it was I was kind of rambunctious, and my uh, boss and i who's a good guy—we uh, got um, we got pretty drunk on New Year's Eve, and um, I don't know—we got into a little thing, and I and I decked him. He told me he came in the next time he he, he came in, and he uh, he said um, that after that he went home. He totaled his car on the way home. His wife chewed him out because he didn't make the New Year's Eve party, and but he came in and and he didn't fire me, but I was fired for somewhat rowdy activities. And then I started Bridgewater in 1975. And when I say started Bridgewater, basically I had a two bedroom apartment. A pal of mine and I went to business school, lived in one bedroom, I lived in the other. Um, He moved out. Investors, institutional investors, would still pay me money for advice. So I continued to trade the markets, and um, and they would pay me money. And it was out of this two bedroom apartment with a friend I played rugby with, and somebody else who who helped us as an assistant. And that's how uh, Bridgewater began. Yeah, crazy. So humble beginnings. So uh, what happened next? When I say humble beginnings, you know, it was the American dream. It was a middle class family. My dad was a musician. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, I, but I had two parents who loved me and took care of me. I went to a public school uh, that was a good school, and I came out to a world of equal opportunity. And that's really pretty much all that anyone needs, and we have a problem. A lot of people are not getting that
0: nowadays, but um, that's all you really need. So what happened next after you launched Bridgewater out of uh, your apartment?
6: you know, sort of managed some monies, mostly corporate risks uh, for hedging and so on. And then I uh, built up a, a small team, like 10 people, and I was having a good life. And then in 1980, 81, which is when inflation was accelerating, Paul Volcker was elected. Helmut Schmidt, the chancellor of Germany, said the highest level of interest rate since Jesus Christ and type money, they created this problem. I analyzed it and found that American banks had lent much more money to emerging countries than those countries were going to pay back. I got a lot of attention for this very controversial point of view. And then in August, 1982, Mexico defaulted on its debt, number of countries followed, and I thought we were gonna go into a big debt crisis. And I couldn't have been more wrong. That's because the Federal Reserve eased a lot of monetary policy, printed a lot of money and created a bull market. That was to the exact bottom in the stock market, August 1982. And that experience was a painful experience, super painful. I got a lot of attention, not only for being wrong, but also uh, lost money for me. I lost money for my clients. I had to let Uh, Everybody go. I was faced with the decision. Would I each morning put on a tie and get on the train and commute to New York to work on Wall Street or would I try to make it? And I did. Um, I was so broke. I had to borrow four thousand dollars from my dad to help take care of my family. But it was the best experiences. It was one of the most painful, but it was one of the best experiences I happened to me because it gave me the humility I needed to deal with my audacity. It made me think, how do I know I'm right? So I wanted to have great upside, but I had, knew I had to deal with the downside. So that gave me an open-mindedness. I wanted to find the smartest people I could find who disagreed with me so I could understand their reasoning. I, I learned how I could reduce risks in the markets without reducing uh, returns by diversifying well and so on. And that was you know the beginning, really, of Bridgewater's uh, success. Bridgewater was, and still is, an idea meritocracy. That means the best ideas went out, they don't have to come from me. So an idea meritocracy in which the goals are excellence at work and excellence at relationship. And we do that through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. So that big punch in the face um, did me a lot of good.
0: Our next guest had her app go to number one on the app store, dominating global downloads. Listen to how Hook's Prana Gupta on the challenges of newfound success. Yeah, I see. And, what about Songify? Like, can you tell the tell the, like our audience about that? Like, when you launched it, it was number one app in the App Store. Like, how did that feel? And like, wh- how did you get that right?
7: Yeah. So Songify was um, when when we were creating music apps, my husband and I. It was we launched that app in two thousand and eleven and it was really the result of a lot of iteration you know songify was an app where you talk you speak into the phone and it'll process your voice and turn anything you say into a song hence the the name songify and we had been we had um, launched an app previously which was a singing app called ladi da which also used machine learning technology where you sing and it'll create music to match anything you sing. And we had some decent success with that. It was a top hundred app. And, you know, we got, um, you know, uh, like a few hundred thousand downloads on it and um, got good response. But what we found was that um, we weren't getting enough mass market usage because people were really afraid to sing. You know, people who are singers love to sing, but vast majority of people really were afraid to sing. They They didn't have confidence in their voice. And so that feedback from users gave us the idea to come up with something that was so simple, you know, we wanted to give people the joy of hearing their voice singing, but hearing themselves sing, but it's so simple that anyone can do it. You just talk and it turns your, what you say into a song. That app, when we launched it, um, we launched it, I believe on a Thursday, a Thursday in 2011, and it kind of started to pick up steam and then, you know, rose up the charts a little bit on Thursday, a little bit more on Friday. And when I woke up Saturday morning, it was the number one app in the world. And that was kind of the moment for me, I think in my career, that was I mean, it was really a pivotal moment. You know, I had been struggling for a long time, basically as a founder, to to really have a hit, and um, that was that was our hit, that was our moment, and it was just an exhilarating feeling. It was incredible. Um, really, kind of took us by surprise, uh, and uh, yeah, it's it, it was a it was a very gratifying moment. But in a lot of ways, you know, and I can talk about this more, but then a lot of stress came in as well. Cause we had something to lose suddenly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. Like, can, can you tell me more?
7: Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting when you make that flip in the beginning, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of nobody, right. And you just have an idea and you're so passionate. No one, most people just kind of don't give you the time of day. And, you know, and that's just the structure. I mean, you know, you're, you have to prove yourself and before you've proven yourself, most people think you're crazy and you just are so scrappy. And what you have is your belief in yourself and in your idea and you don't have anything to lose. And so you give it your all and you don't care, you know, when you get rejected or when something, you're trying a hundred things and, you know, 99 ideas fail and it's fine. You just kind of pick yourself up and you keep going. But suddenly when you've had that first taste of success, you know, there is people start to, people notice everyone kind of comes out of the woodworks. You know, I was being invited on to national television programs to demo the app. And there was so much interest from investors and there were, there were all these opportunities presented to me suddenly. And we have this app at the top of the charts. And now we had to figure out how do we, how do we make the most of this momentum? How do we build a business out of this? How do we keep people coming back to the app? How do we raise, you know, use this to raise funding on the right terms and, what do we do next? And it's really, it's, it's a different phase of in the founder journey. And you think that when you, you know, you, when you start out, you're like, okay, as an app developer, if I could have the number one app in the world, like that would be the most amazing feeling that I've made it, you know, and then you get there and you realize That's just the beginning and the next phase is even harder, (laughs) Um, but that's also part of the fun and just kind of, I think the journey of life, like, you know, it never gets easier. Uh, It's just, you, it gets more challenging and you grow more at, at each stage.
0: Anne McFerrin and Kevin Gould are bringing in over $50 million a year with their beauty label Glamnetic, but it didn't start that way. This is their early advice for early stage founders on doing things that don't scale. Enjoy. it. Mm, I see. So I'm curious, let's like really go back to the timeline just to give people context because I think sometimes when they look at starting a business, they wouldn't they wouldn't even think that you'd spend a year on product development. So is that what you guys were doing in 2018, just pure product development, and then you launched yeah. 2019? Yeah,
8: 2018. 2000- 2018, like actually before, it was like 2017, like end of 2017, I was like working on it. And then I met Kevin, like probably late 2000, like in 2019. So it was like, I was I was working on it for a while. And then also um, the website development just took way longer than it should have because I just, it's like a try. I went like, I went on Upwork and got, you know, all my developers from Upwork. They're like from India, like $3 an hour. Like I had this guy from the Philippines, like $3 an hour um and just it was a lot of trial and error because like then the code that they were, were doing was like so clunky and um, like websites clunky and then like you don't know that right when you're first starting off you have no idea like w- what that even means like to have clunky code you never coded um and then yeah like trying to get inspo for like what the branding or you know should look like like going through like different like it wasn't perfect you know from the beginning i think um i had an idea of like what i wanted everything to look like and then when the developer finished, I was like, oh, that's not what I want it to look like. And so we had to redo everything. So it was just a lot of like, going back to the, the website itself took six months, which, was, which is probably way longer than it should take. But you know, that's just one of the things like, it's it's like a trial and error t- sort of thing. If you're just starting a brand, like you don't know what you're doing. And that's totally fine. Like, I think it's really important to go through that. So, you know, going forward, what is, what's, what should be actually like happening. <laughs>
9: I think even being like super scrappy in the beginning on like product shots, right? Like I remember Ann was shooting oh, yeah. like, product shots in her like apartment at Koreatown in the time. And like, she like found models on Bumble, like BFF and like had free models from Bumble and then like actually, you know, had the, her, like shoe boxes in the apartment yeah, and, like, up with the background. I,
8: <laughs> I fully committed to myself and told myself, cause I was an artist. That I would never spend money on content, which is a lot to commit to as a brand owner. I'm sure a lot of brand owners are like definitely spending money on at least like a little bit of the content, but I was like, zero dollars will be spent on content. Like I'll go, I, I literally would, for set design, I went to go to the dollar store to get like all of my set like stuff. Um, and I was like teaching myself photography, like through YouTube um, and like borrowing my friend's studios, like asking like her, her, friends, uh, who are models to model for me, uh, for free. And the, the pictures actually turned out amazing. Like they looked like editorial style. Cause I would just like put so much effort into it. Um, and then same with product shots, like all of the stuff that we posted on Instagram, which I posted, I committed to posting like two times a day, like daily and I'm just by myself, like I'm a, like <laughs> like the only person doing content and also on stories. Like I'm on stories 24 seven, like talking about my story, like like people are following along, you know, watching my stories as the brand was building. Even to this day, there are members that still remember like me starting the brand from the beginning. They they actually have been following the journey the entire time. And they're just like, it's actually so crazy because I've been following you guys the whole time since you began. and And I knew you were going to blow up. So I was just like, that's crazy that all these people had so much faith in me before um, anything ever happened. Like literally like one of the first ladies that made a purchase, I still remember her because we did a thousand dollars the first day that we launched and I was so excited because I was like, oh my God, that's so much money. Like for one day of sales, like literally sitting there, like waiting for the Shopify notification to go off (laughs) and I'm like DMing customers to like um, get sales so I can get more sales because I only had like 10 dings 10 Shopify notifications go off and I thought that was like a lot right and one of the ladies was like um posted on Instagram this super long post and a selfie with her and my in, uh, lashes and she was like this brand I'm mark my words they're going to pop off. Like they're going to be super successful. Like I know a good quality brand. When I see one, like I've tried all these other magnetic like, glasses, they don't work. When works, like this is going to be a, like, she just like went off on this long paragraph. I still remember it because it was like the first week after we launched. And um, yeah, she posted a selfie with like the purchase. And uh, you know, you remember every customer when you, when you first start, like the first month you're like, you remember literally everyone. And because you like were talking, I was customer service. I was like talking to them, like orders missing. And I'm like, freaking out because there's like three orders missing, you know? And so now this, at the scale that we're at, it's like, it's, it's like crazy to think about.
9: I was gonna say, I think there's two things Ann said that I think if you're, if someone's like an early founder that are super important, like one is if you are willing to put yourself out there, I think Anne putting herself out there behind the scenes on Instagram stories and like speaking on behalf of the brand and showing the behind the scenes is like, you know, one, a great way just to get content because you're content deficient when you're early, like you need as much content as you can get. So like and putting herself out there behind the the scenes of the brand was super important. And I think the second is, it builds a great connection with the audience. And then I think the other point she mentioned, which was super important for us was like, being on the ground from a customer service perspective. And like, as the founder in the beginning, you should be answering every DM, DMing every customer that follows you, because that's a potential sale, right? And like, if anything, even if you don't get the sale, you're, you know, conversing with them and understanding more about like what people want, and then you can make iterations and changes. And so um, those are some like really low hanging fruit in the beginning that like any, you know, any founder could do if, if they chose to.
0: Tim Draper is the Bitcoin billionaire making waves in the education space. As the founder of Draper University, Hear how Tim's thoughts on what it takes to become the next Elon Musk or Steve Jobs? Yeah, yeah. well, that's that's amazing. Uh, Really resonate with your mission, everything you're doing there, to really try and democratize entrepreneurial education. I'm curious, uh, for anybody watching, like the young entrepreneur that perhaps has uh, dreams and aspirations to be maybe the next Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, Uh, what advice would you give to them in terms of, you know, making mistakes?
10: A lot of it is just be bold. Be bold with the things you try. I think the odds of Steve Jobs winning in the computer business were probably one in a hundred. The odds of Elon Musk being able to create a successful electric car company were probably one in a thousand. The odds of him creating a rocket company that was private, that was successful, probably one in 10,000. They were willing to put it all on the line for that, for a big, big outcome. I think what entrepreneurs often lack is that willingness to try something that is so extraordinary and so futuristic and so beyond most people's thinking that if they're successful, it'll be a huge success. And if they're a failure, it'll be the way I like entrepreneurs to look at it is this throw a party. If nobody comes, nobody's going to know that it was a bomb. But if everybody comes, they'll all know that it was a big success. So think of your entrepreneurial activities that way. Throw the party. Try it, go out there, do something and think about it as a very hard thing to do. Find something that you think is very hard to do, something that you are uniquely well qualified for and something that is not obvious. I find that it's, it's often the, the chess players who sort of figure this out, the people who go three or four moves ahead. That can anticipate what the world's going to look like in fifteen years, and so put the fifteen year thing into your head if you 're an entrepreneur, and then the other thing i would I would recommend very highly is for all entrepreneurs to read science fiction and watch science fiction. Science fiction is people's imaginations, and those things tend to come true when I was watching Star Trek when it was started when it first came out, there was no way i thought. They had a communicator like, hey, Spock, and they'd hit their chest or whatever. This is so much better than anything anybody imagined in Star Trek. And when Star Trek came out, it was like, oh, that could never happen. But it all happened. You know, the the tricorder reading, I mean, that's all happening. The thing Dr. McCoy puts on the body, that's like an MRI, you know, magnetic resonance imaging machine. They're all there and everything except for visiting different planets and that's come. So I think we've got to focus on that kind of educating. And if you're an entrepreneur, always be thinking of the future. So let's say you're an entrepreneur right now and you've got a business and you think that it's kind of, kind of interesting and great. First thing I would do, do a Google search. If there are more than 100 people doing the exact same thing, then think okay, if all those companies become successful, then what is it that they're going to need? Or what are customers going to need beyond that? And start thinking that way because if it's just another I'm looking around bottle company, you're not going to win you're going to win on the off chance that you hit it right and that you're going after something that 15 years from now is going to be important. So think 15 years from now. We're going to probably have flying cars. Communication going to be instantaneous and probably in VR, AR, whatever. We're going to have walk around with exoskeletons. Almost everything will be cured like that. We'll all be decentralized. Governments will be competing for you. The borders will have dissolved mostly. We'll be operating in Bitcoin. It's a, new, it's a very different world 15 years from now than it is today. So how does your business fit in to that world 15 years from now? And then start there and then take it back to today. How do I make a business that gets me there? How do I create a business that makes money and gets me to that
0: point? Vern Harnish has been responsible for the growth and development of entrepreneurs all around the world through the Entrepreneurs' Organization. In this soundbite, listen to his experience through a party for Steve Jobs. Enjoy. You founded EO. How did that come about? Well, I, uh, so I had a friend
11: at Harvard who had been involved in launching the student entrepreneurship group there. You have to know in the early eighties, it still wasn't cool, at least in the U S to be an entrepreneur. You know, it was more of, um, Hey, when are you going to get a real job? You know, doctor, lawyer, accountant. Um, and, but it started to take hold, I think really with Steve jobs and, and Michael Dell was just getting ready to come on the scene and the like. So he was visiting me in Wichita at the Center for Entrepreneurship. And we said, hey, why don't we start a student group? So in 84, launched a group called ACE Association of Collegiate Entrepreneurs. And we thought as a publicity stunt, why don't we identify the top 100 young entrepreneurs under the age of 30? And we'll use that award as a way to attract them to come talk to the students. And that very first list, number one on the list was Steve Jobs. And it's always a fun kind of trivia question um what was his revenue uh he was 28 at the time and relative to bill gates and by the way they're the same age apple was almost two billion uh and he was in his late 20s microsoft by the way was only 256 million so apple was eight times the revenue That's why really bill gates always kind of was in the shadow of steve jobs and he then got fired steve got fired from apple and I reached out, and in 1986, I had a chance to host him for his first public speech that he gave after being fired from Apple. And I brought together about 1,200 young entrepreneurs, including Michael Dell and Mark Cuban and many of the others that, that have become quite household names, in, at least in the United States, if not around the world. And we then threw a party for him that night, and it was crazy, Nathan. Steve came to it but he stood in the corner and he was alone. And I remember a mentor of mine, Joe Mancuso saying, it's okay to be independent, but no reason to be alone. And I turned to a friend of mine, Greg Stem, and I said, look, we need to form an organization for the Steves of the world. And it was that night that the idea for YEO was birthed. It took me about a year to raise the money, you know, get it in place, so 87 is our, our launch date. But I really credit Steve. Uh, as being the first real young entrepreneur that spurred a lot of us and a lot of a lot of everybody uh, to launch companies. And it was that night that the idea was birthed.
0: Alex Omozi made $100 million by his 30th birthday and now is on the path to becoming a billionaire. Hear his take on why providing value is key to his success. Enjoy. Fascinating. Look, if there's one thing that you wanted people to walk away from kind of everything you're doing on the education
1: piece, the the knowledge sharing, the books, what what would that be? Give more. And I'll pause for a second and, and, and explain that. So I think that the one thing that, I think Gary V says this well, he says, you know, listen to what I'm saying, but watch what I'm doing, right? And I think that most people could learn more by watching the entrepreneurs, what, what moves they're making rather than necessarily even what they're saying. Um, and part of that's because I think, you know, you don't always, you're not always consciously aware of the moves you're making, right? You just, you only remember to say X, Y, and Z, but there's more nuance to it. And so the thing is, is I think that goodwill compounds faster than revenue does. And so I believe that if you truly give tremendous value and tremendous being the operative word here, I think most people are like, dude, my content's so good. It's like, yeah, but no one watches it. And if it were so good, you would have more people watching it, right? Um, If you give a tremendous amount of value better than what everyone else's paid stuff is. And that's, and that has to be real though, right? Like that has to be real. People say that, but it's not true. And that's the hard part is that the self-awareness piece of like my stuff's so good, but it probably isn't which is why you're not making the money you want. Cause you're not as good as you think you are. But if you actually can de- deliver truly more than anyone else can, and you can price it at zero, the amount of goodwill that you get becomes viral. And then at that point, you will have more demand than you know what to do with. And then at that point, you'll have this desire to liquidate the demand, the goodwill, and monetize it. But that's what you should resist doing. And instead, double down on giving more and only only skimming off a handful that you can service at a high level. And by doing that, you never have to keep generating demand. You will always have more demand than you want, and that demand will continue to multiply. And I talk about this in the book in The Delicate Dance of Desire, right? Which is like, if we can just service the absolute best customers, the best avatars who perfectly fit the problems that we know how to solve better than anyone else, everyone else gets value from you in the marketplace. And the people that you specifically select to be your customers will get outsized returns. They'll rave about you. More people will demand what you want. And again, you sell less than your ability to sell. And I think that's the dance that most people mess up. And so if I had to consolidate it into two words, it's give more. And if you give more than you take the marketplace will always reward you. But most people, their messaging is just, you know, give, take, give, take, (laughs) give, take, whereas rather than like the true, like give, give, give. And my opinion is give, 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 keep going. And eventually you just start getting, you don't even have to ask. You just start getting, that's just something that I have lived through. Um, and I think that if that became real for more people, more people would become zillionaires. But it requires the, the big P word, which is patience, and most people don't have it. So.
0: Want to build an empire? Then you might want to start studying Danny Garcia. She's the co-owner of the XFL, produces blockbuster films with longtime business partner Dwayne Johnson, and recently launched a fashion brand, GSTQ. In this snippet, listen in how Danny Garcia manages her empire. You have many different companies, right? And you've got a whole portfolio. You've, you've achieved incredible success. I'd just love to know, kind of like, how do you find balance? Like, what does a typical day for Danny Garcia look like?
12: You know, the, the days, they do have a few anchor structures, which is really wonderful. So, um, training is actually a very big anchor for my day. So all of my days start getting up early, spending time with my friend, and my husband and a cup of coffee and, and having a quiet moment. I do a lot of centering because since I do have such a broad portfolio, being very centered in what my philosophy is and understanding how I want to interact the world and how I want my companies to interact in the world is very important. Um, And then I spend my mornings, I actually get my training block out in the morning. If I'm on the East Coast, I get to cheat for all my West Coast, I get three extra hours. Um, And then after that, it's really spending time on what are the most important decisions across the portfolio. You know, depending upon the city, I'm sort of a different activity. The training is always the same. And that morning is always the same. And the evening is the same. You know, the evening after the long hours has a wind down period, has time with my family, quiet moments before, you know, going off. But if I'm in New York, then I'm usually very active with individuals, but always purpose. Um, and my company is up there. And if I'm on the West Coast, it's a little bit more production oriented. Um, I do spend a lot of time not actually having appointments or having scheduled calls. About half of my week is unscheduled intentionally so that I can stay at a very high perspective and I can look at what these companies are doing and understand where they need to be. So I try never to get too much into the soup of anything because then I lose my perspective. And all of my companies, while they are very varied, they have one thing in common. They're all all consumer-facing. They all have relationships with the audience or a consumer. So that means that part of my responsibility is actually staying in tune to the consumer and the audience. And if I'm too deep into these companies, I lose that perspective.
0: Hmm, I see so have you ever experienced like burnout or anything because <laughs> you have so much going on?
12: I, you know it is very. It's a great question. 2016. I specifically remember 2016 was. You know, it was an incredible growth year, and uh, we ended the year. My husband took uh, and I went to Hawaii in January, and I think I slept on a sofa outside every day for about two weeks straight. You know, I would wake up, he would get up. He would go work out. I would fall asleep on that sofa, and that's where I had recognized that everything had accelerated so quickly. My process had not adjusted for it, um, so I became really good at that point after 2016 of continuously firing myself from positions so that I could move higher in my perspective. Um, so, but always the um, it's not it's not a moment you know managing or keeping balance of this is not a set. Sort of process. It changes as the portfolio changes and grows every year. So again, I, I have to put that investment into looking at how I'm working to make sure I can continue to work.
0: Interesting. So you said something uh, that I have to delve a bit deeper on. You said around firing yourself, like you yeah. know, as you. Can you tell us more about that?
12: Absolutely. Um, so the I so if I'm going to do more, I can't do the same thing right? Because whatever I'm doing, doesn't, the more doesn't live in those activities. So if I want to move up, I began to realize I need to kick myself out. So I literally would fire myself. I remember when we hired our chief marketing officer, Maya Lassery, who's amazing for seven bucks marketing. That was a fired position. I had taken a lot of the responsibilities of marketing as I was working with our production companies and DJ. And finally, I was like, okay, there is someone who's going to live in this world 24-7, and she's going to do it so much better than I can because I need to do all these other things because she's greatly skilled. I uh, The last firing of myself was probably from the official role as Dwayne Johnson's manager. <laughs> I fired myself. He was very gracious as I fired myself because I needed to move into a strategic advisory position over his enterprise in particular, which is ginormous. Um, So, yeah, I've become really comfortable. Once I start to uh, have so much friction in the positions or I'm feeling a lot of frustration or even, you know, I'm spending a lot of time on minutiae and details that I've begun to realize is the signal that it's time to fire myself and see if I can move up and advance my skills. So I've got, you know, I'm a brutal boss to myself.
0: That's it, guys. It's been an incredible year. You've made it this far. Just a reminder, if you haven't yet, please leave us a review as it allows us to keep bringing incredible content to you every single week. All right, guys. Hope you have an incredible holiday and we'll see you in 2022.